Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. For today's episode, we're featuring my interview with Bina Shah, an award-winning industry agnostic go-to-market leader and workplace design expert with more than 10 years of experience taking companies and products to market and growing organizations. She's worked across all kinds of categories, CPG, SaaS, media, Web3, direct-to-consumer, fashion, nonprofits, and her work has won awards, including Fast Company's Innovation by Design Award, plenty of Clio Awards and DigiDay and Webby Honors. She's a startup advisor and board member, and she writes a column at The Muse on identifying and working through toxic workplaces. In fact, she's currently working on a new book dealing with that same topic. I'm extremely lucky to be able to call her my friend. And so you get to listen to us as we talk at length about how the millennial narrative affects marketing, workplaces, and the immigrant and minority experience, because Beanish is herself a millennial. I hope you really enjoyed the conversation, and here it is. All right. So let's start with you just introducing yourself, and then we'll dive in. Sure. Uh, my name is Beanish Shah. I've been a go-to-market exec and lawyer for my goodness, I think it's about 15 years now. And I specialize in building teams and taking companies to market. And how does one make the transition from lawyer to go-to-market executive? You know, it's funny. It's They're actually like very similar skill sets because as a litigator, your job is to walk into a room and get everybody to agree with your version of what has occurred. And as a go-to-market expert, that's also the thing you have to do. You have to understand all of the players each person's role, and you bring it all together and say, okay, this is the narrative that we're going to go with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, um, the skill set was there. It's a much more positive use of the skill set um, as a person. Mm-hmm. And it was just a matter of like, you know, you, I took on a lot of just like free advisory work until I actually made my way into the industry. It's amazing. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is that experience of working in go-to-market and thinking about marketing, thinking about building brands from a kind of operator's perspective. Obviously, you are also a writer and a soon-to-be-published author on the subject of toxic workplaces. And so I wanted to talk to you about that area of expertise, too. But then there's this kind of root piece, which is that, you know, the whole point of this show is that we've been um, trying to unpack what we keep calling the millennial myth. Mm-hmm. And you are <laughs> in that in that demographic. Um, and yet also don't fit the template that's kind of been set about how we tell the story of millennials. You know, the way we've been thinking about that template starts with this book, Millennials Rising, but then just kind of grows from there and really is built on a vision of millennials, 80 million or so people. But the story focuses on chiefly native born Americans who are white and middle class or affluent and who are living in suburbs or cities and who are college bound or college educated and who are going into a white collar workforce. 
Yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the picture of them, these highly, you know, upwardly mobile white kids. Um, and that's the vision. And so with that comes this sort of template about their, their kind of ambition and drive and hardworkingness. This is at the beginning of the story and their trust and authority, their great relationships with their parents. Uh, but their kind of individualism is a guiding factor. They are, they have individual ambitions and individual drive. And yet have a lot of kind of group belonging stuff. Uh, a woman we interviewed talked about millennials being kind of the first generation to do most of their education in group projects. <laughs> and so, you know, there's sort of some tensions there. And then also kind of a rule followers and um, good consumers and digital natives and all of that kind of template gets laid out at the very beginning. And then we have this inevitable generational heel turn where it turns out that their ambition makes them uh, needy and annoying at work and demanding about things, but somehow also lazy. And they're not growing up fast enough. And they're living with their parents too long. And they're not getting married and on time and not having kids when we want them to and not buying houses. And they're killing all these, <laughs> these industries, you know, with their wokeness and their laziness and their whatever. Um, so, you know, so it's taken a bit of a turn, they're going to be the next greatest generation. And then sometime, perhaps totally coincidentally around the financial crisis turned out maybe not um yeah. <laughs> and so so that's kind of the 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 template um that we are are given and almost all thought pieces about millennials rely on some combination of those stories for thinking about them and framing the way that that story gets told and it you know obviously occurred to us as we as we noticed the constant hand waving of like to be sure the most diverse generation ever in american culture to be sure lots and lots of you know immigration fueling that population size no we just won't talk about them we'll just skip over all of that so we're now trying to talk to more people about the experiences that get left out of that template. And so I guess that was kind of where I wanted to start the conversation for you and your own kind of lived experience, which is what resonates with you about that template? What doesn't? How, how does that template intersect with the life of a brown Muslim woman who's first generation American? Sure. So fun thing is I think that, first of all, every generation, right when they happen, is going to be the next greatest generation, right? We set them up. We love talking about them. We're like, this is it. They're going to change everything. Look how young they are. Look how like big they're thinking. And then we have to start serving that generation. And then they become a problem. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, suddenly they're like, you're asking too much. You're doing all of this. Like, why is this happening? And I think that goes into this idea of like, when, when you're a first gen I don't even know if I'm first generation. I think I call myself like one and a half generation because I came here when I was two. I was born in Pakistan. I came here when I was two. So I lived this weird world of like quite neither. When you come here with that, you don't have time to think about anything else. Mm -hmm. You have parents who are working their way into industries that they may not have or have access to. My dad was an immigrant that ended up in private equity and venture capital. That's a rare thing that happens, right? Without any context which means that he was working all the time to be able to do that. My mom was raising children that with a 200 person family in the United States that was trying to keep tradition alive while also trying to help her children get integrated into what the world is for them today. And so when you're a product of that, you don't have time to worry about how people see you, right? You say, okay, you see me this way. That's great. I actually have to go do this next thing. Which is why, like, when we talk about imposter syndrome, even in the millennial generation, I'm like, a lot of us don't have it because we don't have patience or time for it. Hmm. 
you know, we've grown up in that world. We've grown up in the financial crisis. We COVID happened. Silicon Valley Bank happened. Like there's too much going on for millennials to fit any set narrative. Because we, one, it's a generation of people who've gone through some of the most transformational changes that we've seen kind of on a year by year basis. And so each, like there, there, it can't be this like demographic focused understanding of who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think, one of the things that when you start out with, well, it's going to be 80, I mean, back in 99, they're like, maybe it's, maybe it'll be a hundred million people. And I think, frankly, they were really thinking at that point about continued rates of immigration that, of course, got curbed after 9-11 and so on. But the the thing about that just as a market researcher i just go that's not a segment right it's yeah. it would be like you know i think sometimes my joke about that is that's a gender like that that's that's just too many people to be a segment we we don't segment audiences by well the men want this and the women want this well which men which women what do we do about yeah. people who identify as neither like it gets complicated really fast and that that sense of 80 million people, 70 million people, whatever it is, is simply too big to say there is one set of experiences. That nevertheless seems to butt up against a real desire on the part of people in media, politics, marketing to make that distinction meaningful and to kind of force that narrative on the people who are living inside that circle. And I, you know, I think you, you've raised the point of like, ain't got time for that. But also, like, are are there moments where you have felt like there have been expectations set for you based on that narrative that you kind of look up and go, I don't even know what you're talking about. Or maybe, maybe it does. Maybe you do identify with it. But it feels like it's coming from that place as opposed to observed phenomena, what you're actually doing, what you're actually like, who you actually are as a person. Yeah. So I think that, look, in marketing, Everybody in marketing, and honestly, and I think in life, everybody wants to be able to understand the thing that's in front of them. You want to put people into a box because the box is easier to understand. It's easier to plan against. It's easier to strategize against. And you can say in a nice, beautiful deck, this is who the person is we're talking to, right? This is how we're going to reach them. This is how that's going to happen. And to some degree, you're going to have success, right? Until you start to overdo it. A great example of this to answer your question is like the nostalgia play, right? Of course, of course, I want to see Girl Meets World because I grew up with Boy Meets World and and Mr. Feeny. You do that one too many times and I'm going to be like, this is exhausting. Can we please do something new? Which is what we saw happening. And I think the balance between using a data-defined box to understand this generation versus looking at us as individuals is there's like a meeting place in the middle, right? Which is, it's a little bit of art. It's a little, little bit of science. So sure, there's going to be some things that we all have in common, which is we went through 9-11. So yes, that's going to have a mental scar that some of us don't even like talking about. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the financial crisis. So yes, we we experienced things together. So they will allow us to think of those things similarly. But then on top of that, we'll have our different lived experiences, right? So I think that's the way that I look at it. And then as you know, an individual, I say, I am a millennial. And there's a lot of things that resonate with me, like all of those BuzzFeed lists that came out like 10 years ago, absolutely resonated with me. But then my brother's 10 years, like 10 years, eight years younger than me, he's a millennial. And like, maybe it doesn't resonate with him because he's a different end of that spectrum. My sister's in the middle. Some of that stuff doesn't resonate with her. But I think that's the thing. It's like this, the generational 
piece is so big. If we're talking about people who are born within three years of each other, you're likely to be like, okay, we have more similarities. We've we've had the same things happen to us at the same time. It's just hard when you're like, here's a 30-year period. <laughs> all have the same experiences while the internet was invented. Right. And then maybe happened. Right. And like, you know, everyone started flying everywhere. It's a very different world. Yeah. I think the other thing that has come up in, in our research and our conversations about this is a sense that when we're talking about just about any generation that has been defined, and, and that's a relatively, you know, it's not new, like the, the sociology of generations goes back to like the the, the 1910s and, and even be earlier than that. But the ideas that frame certainly a very America-centric definition of generations really kind of seems to put baby boomers at the center, because I think that's the first one that really gets named. And mm-hmm. then we work out from there. <laughs> and so, all right, well, their parents fought in World War II. So sometime in the late 80s, Tom Brokaw writes a book called The Greatest Generation. And that's what we wind up calling that group. There's a little bubble generation between the between them, don't know what to call them. So uh, well, Nixon talked about the silent majority, so we'll call that the silent generation. <laughs> and then there's this like group that comes after the boomers, and that's Gen X. And then this group of people that are hilariously regarded as the boomers' true children. Uh, Gen X, of course, <laughs> was also the boomers' children. <laughs> but the, that's that's our Gen Y, millennials, echo boomers, whatever we want to call them. And so we're. it seems like, and we're going to do a show about this at some point, that whenever we're talking about any of these generations, we're actually still talking about boomers. And I think one of the things we talked about before was, uh, and you referenced a great story uh, that Hassan Minhaj tells in uh, Homecoming King about sort of the difference between what his parents were trying to go through and what he's going through, that he sort of talks about as the audacity of equality, that his parents are just trying to survive and build mm-hmm. something. I mean, it's more than survival. It's it's like mm-hmm. survive to thrive, but like keep your head down, don't worry if they get your name wrong, that kind of thing is happening there. And then his generation, millennials, are saying, hold up. <laughs> like I, I think I think we can do a little bit better than that. And and we talked about that before. And and I'm I'm curious about that intergenerational piece for you as a millennial in in the in the community you were raised in. It the the point that Hassan made is incredibly important because I think it's this idea of like, you know, what America was sold to to immigrants, sold as to immigrants was, you're so lucky to be here. It is the most amazing thing. Everybody here is nice. Nobody would ever wish ill upon you. I mean, our history obviously shows otherwise, but we are phenomenal marketers here. And so, you know, immigrants came in and you are just pushed to be so thankful that you got your visa, that you got here, that you got a job, that you're getting access to education, that you don't ever give yourself yourself the space to say, what's happening to me is not okay. The way I'm being treated is not okay. Like that that perception shift isn't allowed. And then you have the children that grew up here. And the children who grew up here grew up around this idea that actually I'm equal. And this goes back to what I was saying, you know, when you're children and you do that, everyone's like, that's amazing. And then you become adults and you do that. And then suddenly you're a brown kid who is saying I'm equal to the person standing in front of me. And that is received very differently. It's received differently in the workforce and marketing and all of these things, right? It's so it's the same as when we talk about marketing, right? All Muslims are bundled together as one segment. And you're like, mm, that is a dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. We don't even speak the same language. <laughs> right? How exactly are you reaching us? But it's because this idea of like identity being owned by 
first generation and second generation immigrants, it, it goes against how we're supposed to be. It goes against us being thankful. It mm. puts us in the world of asking for the things that we told we were told are ours. And talking to that generation, marketing to that generation is different because you can't be like, oh, look, token minority, how exciting. And we're going to be like, that's a, a Latin person that you are making play a Pakistani person and they're not using the same language mm-hmm. on TV. How did you do that? So we're not like, oh my God, it's so great. They had a Muslim name on TV. We're like, that's not a person that we were misrepresenting, right? Mm. So I think that's the big difference. And I think the other thing that you you see happening is like, there's this the shift and we talked about this before, the shift between like the greatest generation here and everywhere else had the benefit of community in a way that this generation doesn't have. This generation is a product of being pushed into hyper-individualism, which puts you in a position of like, there is nobody else to stand up for you. So you have to stand up for yourself. Mm. It's a byproduct of that. Which I think is a really interesting tension because Rose Cameron, who we were talking to in a in a different show episode, was talking about this like move in in like K through twelve education towards group projects and lots of group endeavors, which I suspect also creates some anxiety there about who's getting credit and all of that. Because the the problem with the group project in in American schools is like. Yeah, we're doing it as a group, but that means, you know, somebody's not pulling their weight or, you know, whatever. How am I being evaluated on this? You're still being graded individually. You're still being ranked and rated individually. And so you do have this, you know, there have been a few kind of thought pieces recently more about Gen Z than about millennials, but we saw similar things with millennials around this kind of group orientation of, you know, for instance, looking at e-commerce for fashion and apparel. And if I don't see a variety of bodies and a variety of ethnicities, even if I'm a thin white person, I still feel like somehow this isn't inclusive. And so that's that's bad. And and I want to I want to stand up for that inclusivity as a value. But then again, like if they look like the fit models, <laughs> then kind of what difference does it make? Right. And, and so yeah. there's this kind of interesting tension of wanting to have more kind of group accountability or accountability to the community, a more inclusive worldview, that tolerance that the millennials have been credited with. And then this, like, no, you, you have all these individual obligations and milestones and expectations that you have to live up to. And so just keep plugging forward and up based on that very kind of individualistic view. And you can see it in the, even in the earliest book, like you can see the sense of they'll be the greatest generation if nothing bad happens to them. And they'll just kind of keep individually achieving their fullest potential as economic units, frankly. But if something bad happens, then the downside risk of this huge generation is that they will band together in solidarity and rise up and overthrow the existing order, right? And all of a sudden, like, it goes from being very white to very multicultural real fast. And like, the, the downside risk is that solidarity again in, in an intracultural, multicultural way. And you can just feel it. it. It just drips off the page that that's the anxiety. I'm sure anytime they're like, oh, my God. It could be, it could become diverse. It, it feels scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> funny. But I think there's this, the tension is really this idea of like the collective good versus the individual good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about inclusivity, the reason people have still a hard time doing it right, and so directive consumer is a good example, e-commerce is a good example, is because you're not actually doing it for the collective good. You're just saying my customer needs to be able to see themselves. 
Mm. Right. It becomes individual. It's, it's still responding to the me portion of that mm-hmm. versus looking at it from the perspective of, are we actually doing something for the larger customer base? Right. right. That's very much in like, I would say the commerce language of it. And if you apply that to a larger, just like a, a people conversation, it's similar. It, it is in the media, politician, capitalists. It's in the, their best interest to keep everyone individually focused, which is why in a group project, you're, treat, you're still graded as an individual mm-hmm. versus the group being graded. And then the collective good is harder. Because when you're create graded as one group, you have to be okay with the fact that somebody's not pulling their weight. Mm-hmm. You have to be okay with it. You have to be okay with the fact that there's going to be one person who's leading, one person who's not leading. Somebody's like stepping in somewhere else, and and everybody finds their place, and it's a different place based on whatever's happening in front of them, right? In in South Asian cultures, and, and I think in a lot of ethnic cultures generally, like we look at community good sometimes to a fault over everything else. Because we're saying that not everyone can be successful in every moment. It takes that pressure off of you, Mm. right? It means that if you can't cook today, your sister is going to come over and bring you food, right? Or your neighbor is going to, or whoever else is going to. If you lost your house, it's going to be okay because you're going to be able to go and live with someone. That doesn't exist in the same way in the United Mm. States. In the United States, it's a, if you fail you fail. If you succeed, you succeed. Mm-hmm. And we're going to continue to push that on you. We're going to continue to enforce that on you. But it creates a very high level of anxiety. And I think you can see that. The the, the collective threat for millennials, anxiety. <laughs> we all have it. <laughs> yes. You know? But it's it's there because the tools as the tools of support have been taken away by taking away this like idea of collective good can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. We've gone like from in, like collective to like individual. It's been such a massive pendulum swing, and I think what we're seeing is like people have lost the villages that are necessary to be able to exist in life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's serving any in anybody except for the people making money off of us. Honestly, yeah. And and that was something you had alluded to in our last conversation about finding a balance between individualism and community. Because I think you also have a very interesting kind of American impulse that when you see uh, more ethnic communities that like take great pride in the success of one person within that community or feel great shame at the failure of one person in that community, that like that gets read, I think, by white folks (laughs) as either way, stolen valor or putting too much pressure on on people or toxic in some some particular way. And yet there's also something really nice about knowing that you've got this wall of people behind you, that you've got all these hands on your back. And so like the, the flip side of it is like, well, if you fail, that's on you. If you succeed, that's on you. And no one gets to be proud of you. No one gets to say that, you know, I mean, even the way that we reacted to Barack Obama talking about, you know, if you're, if your business is using public roads and public infrastructure and hiring people who were educated in public schools, you didn't build that. Mm-hmm. That just got reacted to as if it was, I mean, that, that was just the most profane idea in American politics at the time. I mean, I think it's like, there is a balance. The abuse of any system, it can be possible and it, and it happens. I mean, systems are all just power dynamics. Every and power at some point will get abused. It, it's kind of the unfortunate reality of being human. I think that what we need to get to is a balance between 
being able to value the individual while also crediting the community. Mm. That makes sense, right? So it's not that like the toxic parts of it come in where like it's like the entire value of the community and the entire like upward mobility of the community is reliant on one person, right? That's actually not community behavior. That's still individualistic behavior. You're actually just making one person responsible for everything. Community behavior is what we're saying. We're all responsible for ourselves and we are all responsible for each other. What you hear right now a lot in like pop psychology all over TikTok, which drives me crazy because that's very dangerous, is that this idea of like boundaries and cutting people off and, you know, like, like really focusing on yourself. Yes, focus on yourself. It's important that you are healthy and happy. But if you do that at the expense of other people, you are also the problem, right? And I think that we need to learn to get back to the middle of like, I am a valuable person as an individual. My community is also valuable because together we make everything better. Mm -hmm. But if you separate that out, if it's just like community versus individual, which is what the media has really played us into right now, it's going to be toxic on both sides. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, this is kind of a digression, but yesterday I sort of hit a moment where I just really needed to talk to my mother about a thing I'd been avoiding talking to almost everyone about. (laughs) And I was nervous about it because I didn't really know how she would react to the conversation. But once we got into it, I was like, kind of kicking myself because I was just like, uh, so because this is a really fraught topic for me and because I'm actually seeing pattern that people aren't supposed to talk about this thing, I deprived her of an opportunity to do, to do it well. And she actually did it really well. Like she was really sympathetic. She heard me out. She didn't really have any advice, but nobody does. So that's okay. And it was just this moment of like, oh God, I really suckered for this idea of you're not supposed to talk about this thing with anybody. And if you try to talk about it with somebody who hasn't gone through exactly what you've gone through, they're going to get it wrong and they're going to step on your feelings. And I was so convinced and have been so convinced that that's the way that that conversation goes that I didn't talk to her about it for two and a half years and then told her about it yesterday. She was great. (laughs) Like, and it's just like, you don't give anyone the opportunity to be supportive or to try to empathize or sympathize or to show you even a bare modicum of support by simply listening to you talk. Mm -hmm. And that, that is interesting because I, 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 that sort of boundary setting thing. And I know, right. As we were talking, I was talking about setting respectful boundaries in another organization (laughs) I'm a part of, but like respectful boundaries are different from just like, I'm cutting you off. Like don't email me after five o'clock is a different thing than sort of saying like, you know, if it's a particular kind of thing you need, you need me, that's different. But if we're just chatting because you're bored, (laughs) um, I need to sleep, (laughs) you know, it's because these conversations are nuanced, but we like to going back to the earlier part of the conversation, we like to put things in neat little decks and boxes, Mm -hmm. boundaries is a question of, do I need a wall right now? Do I need a fence right now? Or do I just need a little bright line that like I know is there, Mm -hmm. right? And then the way we communicate is based on the thing that is needed for ourselves and for the other person. But but nobody explains that to you. They're just like, you need a boundary. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to figure out what a boundary is. And then you're like, I need a wall. Nobody can talk to me after 5 p.m. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, that's not... Things for context, <laughs> right? Work, and you see this happening with like each aspect of millennials' lives, right? Like moms in this generation feel the loneliest. Like data shows it, they feel the loneliest. But what are they constantly told? Don't let people 
tell you what to do about parenting. Don't take advice from anybody. Don't involve people in your life. Like, okay, if you do all of those things, you're going to end up with a generation of moms who are very lonely. Maybe what we should teach instead is give yourself grace, give others grace. Mm -hmm. Those two need to happen in tandem. Otherwise, you might be nice to yourself, but you might be mean to someone else, right? Like it's like a, it's a balance. Mm -hmm. You see this happening in workforces. Women are leaving executive and leadership positions at, at a higher rate than we anticipated happening because they feel incredibly lonely at the top. Mm-hmm. And they're lonely because they're not allowed to talk about anything to anyone. To your point, like it's like if I if I speak to my other executive friend about this, what are they going to think of me? Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, okay, I can actually like, I can and I should ask for advice or I can and I should just call and be like, I need to vent. Mm-hmm. It's just, right. And we see this at like every layer of life for millennials, which is that we're told you have to be everything. You have to be everything to yourself and you are complete. You don't need anybody else, right? Like, yes, I'm a complete person, but you know what? I need my friends. I need my family. I need all these other people. I need the person who's going to help me figure out what to do with my yard because I lived in a city for most of my life and I actually (laughs) don't know how to mow grass, right? Which is an actual reality in my life. (laughs) That collective need exists to want to rely on each other. But I think in the last two decades, we've been really primed to not rely on each other, which I think is like a huge part of this anxious feeling we're seeing. Mm I wonder, you know, I know that you've been working in tech for a while. And one of the things that I, you know, again, as a market researcher, whose job it is Mm -hmm. to talk to people encounter with particularly the tech companies that I work with is a what has become a fairly dominant belief. You know, this is in, in, you know, all candor, mainly coming from white guys who went to Stanford or Princeton or something like that. Right. But they, they have a real kind of interesting take and that I sum up, (laughs) take on humans that I sum up in a particular way, which is that their conception of humans is that we are social endocrine systems in meat suits running around trying to get laid. And that's it. Like there's that free will is an illusion. Rationality doesn't exist, that no one is actually reasoning their way through anything or um, reacting in ways that are quote unquote rational. And, you know, so that's kind of that (laughs) that frame on things, which then sort of leads to this like, well, we'll just like, you know, lizard brain everything and kind of A-B test our way to success and um, and not like countenance anyone's stories about their own experiences. And as you were talking, I was thinking about that because I think, you know, the, the actual truth is like social, yes, and sure, genetic impulses that all creatures have to propagate. Mm-hmm. But um <laughs> but actually like we're we're not solely at the mercy of our hormones. Um uh, there is a social structure that humans have generally thrived in. It's the same thing with like people who believe, you know, and I get this a lot of like, well, aren't you concerned about people lying to you in in research? And my general answer is no, because lying, and there's lots of social science about this, doesn't really happen that much. Like people don't walk around in their lives lying very often. And when they do, it's under kind of predictable circumstances. Like it's reasonable for cops to worry about people lying to them. The stakes are really high. I could lose my freedom or my life in my interaction with a police officer. So I might have more incentive (laughs) 
to try to make myself look good than in other interactions. I'm just some stranger, usually in a screen like this, who's just asking about what you like to eat for dinner. It's not a high stakes interaction. You don't really need to impress me. So if you like to eat hot dogs for dinner, just say so. And most of the time people do. <laughs> You know, um, but the the interesting thing about that is that expectation of lying. It just doesn't work. Like if you think about how many humans there are on the planet, you have to have these highly social, trust driven structures mm -hmm. where we default to trust. We assume that that stranger means us no harm, because otherwise we would preemptively kill them. Yeah. And then there would not be however many billion we're up to now. And it just, it literally makes no sense. But we have steered the conversation, particularly, I think, in the US, well, in kind of English speaking countries, I guess, into this sort of idea that no, you know, you can't trust anybody else. Everything's on you. You live and die by your own decisions. But you're not really making any decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, how, what a, what a whirlwind to try to lead your life in and figure out how to chart a path through. It's interesting. I think it comes from like this idea concept of like fear-based complacency, mm. right? What you do is you create a generation of people who are complacent because you've given them the things that make them feel complacent. And they're like, you're like, everything is fine. Everything is good. Look how great we're doing, but also be scared of everything because it could all be taken away from you. Right. And it's this like very interesting thing that has happened to us for 20 years. And I think it broke when it started to break, when Hillary Clinton lost, mm. right? like suddenly you were like, wait a second, Trump won. We didn't see that coming. We all thought this was a joke. What the hell? And then you started to see a lot of people being like, um, have I just been complacent? Have I not been paying attention to what's going on around me? And I think that started to happen more and more. And I think this concept of wokeness that people are so upset about right now is actually a process of people awakening to the things that have been going around them that they just got away with ignoring for a really long time. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to wake up and look around you and be like, wait, is the thing that was being sold to me really the thing I want? Which is when it breaks for the, this tech concept mm -hmm. of like, this sell them the thing, you control the narrative, you control the thing that's happening. It works really well when people are complacent and they're, and they're scared. It doesn't work when people start to question you and question everything around you. If we look at direct-to-consumer as an industry, it worked really well because people were like, yeah, sure, of course I want this delivered to me. And then it stopped working when people were like, I don't know if this product is really as good as you tell me it is, mm -hmm. right? I think I actually like, like my Samsonite suitcase versus a suitcase you're telling me is amazing because your thing keeps breaking. Mm -hmm. My friends keep buying it, it's breaking. And then the consumer starts to think about it, right? The consumer starts to think about it. The voter starts to think about it. Like the investor now has to, like it, what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, the investors have to think differently now. You, when you start to see a population in a position where they have to ask more questions, human behavior changes and it becomes unpredictable. Mm -hmm. People are finding their own answers in a way that they didn't do before. Yeah, They were fine with whatever answer they were given them, that was given to them. Now they're saying, I'd like to find the answer for myself because I don't know if I trust the answer that you're giving me. Yeah. And that's interesting to think about for this age cohort, because obviously this book comes out in 99. So the 2000 election hasn't happened yet. You know, 9-11 hasn't happened yet. The financial crisis hasn't happened yet. The election of Barack Obama hasn't happened yet. Trump hasn't happened yet. The pandemic hasn't happened yet. And each one of those things are fundamentally disruptions of complacency. Each one of those things are, you thought this is how elections worked. You thought this is how 
the world was ordered. You thought you were safe in this particular way, whatever that means. You, you know, to say nothing of the forever wars, like you thought America was like this. You thought the markets worked in this particular way. You thought that there were, you know, that work happened in this one way. And I feel like, you you know, what you also talked about has to do with the the constant hand wringing over work from home. And even just the Stephen Ratner piece in the New York Times the other day about is working from home really working? And like, why are these people taking part time jobs when there are full time jobs? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe they have other things they need to do. Um, <laughs> but each one of these things is, as you said, kind of this awakening of the way I thought it worked, and the way that I chose to operate within that story, out of complacency and fear or one or the other, I've now been shown, maybe not, Maybe it doesn't really work like that. And to your point, I now actually have to start thinking my way through this and figuring out, well, what do I want? And what do, what do I want to do? I think what's interesting as well is, you know, there's a way in which kind of the story of toxic masculinity is is basically saying like, hey, sexism is bad for women. Turns out it's also bad for men. <laughs> and that these things where it's like, hey, turns out these things that Horatio Alger story that sold to, you know, white Americans, particularly white male Americans about you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you make it work and self-reliance and all of that isn't just toxic for people who don't look like that. It's toxic for the people who look like that. It's none of yeah. these things really work in practice for very long. They might work for a little while, but they have a point where it comes to a head. Yeah. And I think the shelf life of some of these things is what we're seeing right now. The the work from home conversation makes me laugh daily because working in media and working in like narrative building, you can see what's happening. We're like, oh, okay, there's a group of people who who it's in their financial best interest for people to be back at the office. Maybe it's real estate developers, maybe it's other people. But like there's a there's a vested interest and in like people need to come back to the office. In the complacency years of being like, you know, complacent but a little scared, everyone would be like, no, that makes complete sense. Nobody would question that all of this stuff is being written about in the media. Maybe they're right. They're, they're right. Like, why else would it be written? Why else would this be like the zeitgeist? I think what you're seeing now is people be like, mm, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is right, which is why it's still like a year and a half of this full campaign of trying to get people back into the office and still people are resisting and senior people are resisting and very Mm -hmm. good talent is resisting. And so it's forcing people to say, I think they may have figured out that this is in in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing more and more of that happen, which is like, people are saying the thing that you sold to me for so long that you told me was my only option. You told me was the right option. I am now realizing you don't have my best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. If you don't have my best interest in mind or my family or my community or any of those things, that is now beginning to, that's landing on us, right? So the idea, like one of my favorite things to look at is um, community fridges. Um, do you know about these? Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Through you, so I think the, I know about them. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, so there we go. But like, you know, mutual aid being a concept, which is, Actually, like it's like some people who don't understand it how to like it's a very new concept, but really it, it's the idea of like people helping people because the idea is like I help you today not because I'm giving you charity, but because tomorrow I could need help. Mm-hmm. And I think that we we're seeing another rise of mutual aid and community based help because I think a lot of people are, are in this boat of realizing that like wait, does an individual something may not be right like. And it, and it shows up in the workplace in a really interesting way because, like, I think toxic workplaces, for example, and you know this, I'm writing a book on this and I'm very obsessed with this topic. 
it, it feeds on this idea of individualism mm-hmm. deeply, right? It feeds on the, on the idea of like, you, there's one place at the top, you're going to get the promotion. We're going to push you really hard. Like you, it's all about you, 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 me, 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 mm-hmm. right? Versus looking at it from like, if we work together as a team, we're going to get here. If we work together as an organization, we're going to get here. If we share information, we're going to get here. And you see the the same stuff I was talking about from like a community perspective happens at the workplace and you start to create this like very anxious culture because everyone is only watching out for themselves, not even necessarily the company, just themselves. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about how these tropes play out. And one that comes to mind as you're saying that is, is the everybody gets a trophy trope about millennials that, you know, you get an award for just showing up kind of thing. And, and that is a point of mockery and a way to Mm -hmm. not take millennials seriously in the workplace. But it is also still the incentive structure. It's like, but you could get a trophy. Don't you want a trophy? Um, Don't you want that promotion or that not real promotion, just the title only promotion? Don't you want, I have worked in advertising agencies where the joke is, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't even think about coming in on Sunday. And like, you know, that kind of, you know, shy day where I worked, shy day and night was the nickname for it. And it was like, a thing that I think we were supposed to be proud of. And yet at the same time, I'm slightly too old to be a millennial. It was still kind of like, but really though, is that, is that good? (laughs) The the participation trophy thing is another thing where you're just like, who came up with this? Like who came up with this concept and why did you come up with it? Because the theory behind it is good, which is that you should reward people for making it an, an, an effort, Right. That's not a new theory. We say that all the time. We say that with like, it's the intention that counts when you give a gift to somebody. It's the intention that counts when you do next thing, right? So we know that it's important to reward people for having good intentions and putting in work. Well, we weaponized it instead. Mm-hmm. Right? We took the thing that's supposed to be good and it's supposed to be, be compassionate and supposed to recognize work and we weaponized it to say that like, ugh, millennials just want to be like patted on the back because they showed up to something because they showed up to the soccer field. They didn't do any, they didn't actually play. Okay. They, first of all, the people you're talking about are four years old. Okay. <laughs> Four-year-old, sure. Like take them out to dinner. It's fine. But in the workplace, that's not a thing that actually happens. No one, no one expects to get rewarded for doing nothing. They also don't want to be working seven days a week because that is not what they were hired to do. It goes back. It's like they have a quiet quitting conversation, right? Mm. It's like, oh, it's a patient trophy because they like they do their job, but they're not doing more. I would like you to hear that sentence. They do their job, but they don't do more. Are you paying them to do more? You're not. Funny. Then you can't actually expect them to do more. They should just do the thing that you're paying them to do. If you would like them to go above and beyond that, incentivize them to do it. But in this current climate, we were like, we're going to lay you off because we can. We're going to do it in brutal ways because we can. We're going to do X, Y, Z because we can. The answer you're going to get from now, the employee pool is going to be like, I'm going to do my job because I can. (laughs) I'm going to do more than that because I can. And I think there's like that, there's like becoming this like rebalancing of power structures. And the uncomfortability we're feeling is part of that rebalancing, but nobody's getting a participation trophy. No. You know, sure, there'll be an outlier. I know someone's gonna be like, well, so and so did. Absolutely. There's outliers <laughs> to everything. But like generally speaking, no one's getting a participation trophy. People are getting what they're worked for. Yeah. 
One thing I'm curious about, though, is obviously this this age span is what it is. So you have millennials who could be 42, 43. You could have millennials who are 22. Mm -hmm. And so you've got employees who are kind of just starting out in their careers. You have people who are now senior level or in leadership roles or are the boss who are entrepreneurs and leaders. And they're all technically in the same generation. So they've all kind of grown up with more or less the same stories about how they're supposed to behave and what they're supposed to expect and what's good and bad about them because they were born in these years. And I'm curious about what your what you have seen, what you've experienced as like being a millennial boss to millennial employees. How are millennials making that transition? And again, I re- recognize the ridiculousness of this question because I don't even believe in like millennials as a thing. But like, yeah. you know, people who are all being raised on the same stories, how are they navigating that shift from, you know, be- being in the camp that's like, well, you're not paying me more to do more. So I'm going to do my job. And then the group that's getting pressure from wherever they're getting it to say, no, I need you to do more than I'm paying you for. So I think it's this idea of like, millennial bosses, I guess I'm going to just say like people who have had more experience in their career. I think they're being put in a position of now being like, do we want to behave the way we were behaved to, or do we want to behave in a different way? Mm-hmm. And I think that conversation is is very much alive and well, and it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that those of us that decide actually, we would like to not behave that way, have to do a continuous check on ourselves when we do react in a way that we're we've been taught as an okay way to react, right? Mm. On the same side, like the millennials that are earlier in their careers have been sold something that is also shooting them in in their foot, which is like this idea of like, bring your full self to work. Mm -hmm. What they're not understanding is very much like the participation trophy. This is something that's being weaponized against them in a way that like, they're not aware of fully because you can't bring your full self anywhere, (laughs) right? Like the way I am with my niece, like who wants two and a half, wants two, is very different from the way I am with my like best friend's kids, one of them who's a teenager, right? I can't be the same person for each of them. I can't be the same person for my friend because they need me to be different in that moment. It's parts of who I am. And I think that's the same thing in, in a professional work environment, which is like, bring the thing that's needed for this moment. It's still you. Don't Don't not be you. Just bring the piece of you that's going to matter and be useful to you here mm-hmm. and be useful to people around you. Instead, we're selling this idea of like, bring your full self. So you you have people early in their career talking about very personal things in an environment that they may not be aware will become used against them. Mm-hmm. It's going to be used against them in HR. It's going to be used against them by a boss that's not a very kind boss or a very compassionate boss or another coworker that's going to use that against you, right? And it's a it's a balance of being like I do want to be able to talk about the things that happen or that are happening in my life, but I don't want it to be used against me. And if you don't want it to be used against you, then you have to be very conscious of how you're bringing that into the workplace. A good example of that is like you know we've been we've become very good, and this this is really important um, about having conversations around like neurodiversity. It's critical that we have those conversations. I think it's important to remember that the shift will not happen overnight because you still have a large population that are executives and managers that don't understand that very well. Mm-hmm. And they get to decide if you're getting a raise and they get to decide if you're getting a promotion. Yeah, It's not fair and it's not right, but that is a reality that we're living in. So I think that like on both ends of this, everyone has to understand that we're seeing a shift and we have to move together in that shift. The shift can't happen overnight. Yeah. 
And I think this is, you know, the the thing we talked about before when I was asking you about your book, and maybe you can say a little bit more about where you're coming from with it, because I think what's interesting about it, it's about toxic workplaces and how to navigate them. But a lot of it is not like, happy, clappy, we're going to make all workplaces not toxic. It's more accepting that all workplaces are toxic in one way or another, <laughs> and being really clear-eyed about that and figuring out how you want to move through that space, if you want to move through that space. But maybe say a little bit more about what your what your thought process is with that, since it seems so baked in what we've been talking about. With the book, it's the idea that like being anti-toxic or preventing a situation from becoming toxic takes active work. It doesn't just happen because we say, we want a good workplace. We want to hire good people. We want to hire nice people or kind people. It's a business, which means that the pressures that are going to come with that can make people behave in ways that they didn't know they wanted. They they could behave in, right? Like a great example is like you have a really great CEO who genuinely wants the right thing. They hire somebody who helps the business go from zero to like 50 million. And now they're now reliant on that person. Turns out that person is driving the team in a way that isn't great. We all know that person should be gone for many reasons. (laughs) The CEO can't make that decision because they're like, oh my God, I'm so reliant, right? Now, what the CEO is looking at is also like, there's all of this pressure from investors, from board members, from media to hit the numbers. And they're like, how are we going to hit the numbers if this person isn't here? How are we going to do that? So it's helping them understand, it's like helping the execs understand that like you have a fiduciary duty and this could affect the company in a lot of ways that you are not seeing outside of just, you know, your sales goal mm-hmm. or your, your revenue goal. But it's also helping everybody understand that like not having a toxic workplace requires us to constantly look at it from a strategy and operations perspective, not from just quote unquote, an HR perspective. It's actually, it, it, it affects the bottom line of the business. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more, it's like helping people understand like what to look out for the patterns that exist that help you see that this is because this is toxic. And then as an individual, what do you do? Cause this is you and your career, but also from an organizational perspective, what are the things that you should be looking at so that you can push your organization in a better, better direction? Yeah. I mean, are, are there particular things that you, as you've been talking to people, I know you've been, you've also been writing um, various columns about this as well, and people are posing their toxic workplace challenges to you. Yes. Are, are there intergenerational or intercultural differences that you're seeing and the types of experiences of these toxic workplaces that people have? I think the experience of how they are are surprisingly the same across the board. I think who's affected shifts. Because you might be more might be more insulated if you're a white man. You might be way more insulated if you're a white man that graduated from an Ivy League university who has access beyond what's happening at your workplace, right? You're going to be less insulated if you're a black woman. Period. <laughs> Nothing else, right? You're going to be less insulated from it. Um, you're going to be less insulated if you are the only female or a person of color or woman of color on the executive team. Um, for various reasons. So I think it's it's like the experiences, the types of experiences are the same. The degree and the way they affect you shift based on your level of insulation. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I think the 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 last thing I just wanted to ask about there is is like, 
you you also said something in our previous conversation about the kind of convenience and earlier in this conversation about the convenience of sticking people in boxes. And I'm curious, as you are thinking about <laughs> we're in the middle of a, of a big holiday, I'm seeing the mm-hmm. brands out there wishing people, you know, happy fasts. Um, <laughs> uh, but maybe, you know, uh, maybe we can close on on how you see marketers treating giant segments of people as monoliths and, uh, and, and and how that goes right or how that goes wrong. Oh, of course. I think I told you this example, maybe when we talked some random conversation before, but like the team behind Aladdin on Broadway decided to reach out to like South Asians and um, celebrate Diwali for Aladdin, right? Which like, look, love Diwali. I genuinely love Diwali. Like I think it's one of the most beautiful things ever. However, Aladdin's storyline leads a lot of people to say this may not be necessarily about India or about the Hindu tradition within India. You might want to like just research the background of where Aladdin came from, where the story <laughs> came from, the way you the way Disney re- like misinterpreted a lot of that. And then you might have said, hmm, not all of South Asia has the same religion. Similarly, not all Muslims are from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so maybe you look at it as a collective. I think it's more like I would encourage marketers to not fall into the lazy box creation, mm-hmm. right? Maybe try a Venn diagram. Yeah. We know you love Venn diagrams. We know all marketers love Venn diagrams. We're like, send every deck. But maybe try that as a perspective first before you put people into a box. Create the boxes afterwards. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it there for time. But obviously, we could talk about this for hours. Um, thank you for joining me. And I look forward to talking to you again. (laughs) I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, Phoenix. Bye. On the next episode of In the Demo, we talk to two experts about different elements of millennial relationships and intimacy. We talk about sex with Cindy Gallup, founder of the social sex platform Make Love Not Porn, and Katie Caduto, a professor of media science at Boston University, who studies the intersection of mass media and interpersonal communications, including online dating apps. We also hear from millennials themselves about their attitudes to sex and romance. One little programming note. I want to extend a special thanks to my good friend and sometime collaborator, Danita Reese, who turned my attention to questions about individualism versus community as a point of tension in the millennial narrative. Her insightful questions are what brought you our episodes with Christina Blacken and Bina Shaw, and also led us to talk to Cindy and Katie. Let's call her an executive producer of these episodes and thank her for her always generous spirit. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license.